Hey, welcome to the Afikra podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today we have another episode of Outline, our podcast series all about process. We're speaking with Andrew Simon, who just published his book all about cassette culture in Egypt. We're taking a look at the process going from idea to execution to publishing. I hope you enjoy the series. As always, go to afikra.com slash support if you'd like to support our work. Thanks so much. Welcome, everybody. My name is Mikey Mhenna. I'm here hosting another episode of our outline series, which is focused on process, uh, the process behind a project. Our special guest is Andrew Simon, who is a historian of media, popular culture, and the modern Middle East. He holds a BA in Arabic uh, and the Middle East and Islamic studies from Duke University, my alma mater, uh, which is very exciting, and was a fellow at the Center for Arabic Study Abroad in Cairo during the 2011 Egyptian Revolution. He received his PhD from Cornell and is currently serving as a lecturer at Dartmouth. Andrew's interdisciplinary research has received generous support from the Social Science Research Council and the American Research Center in Egypt, and his work has been published in the International Journal of Middle East Studies and cited in the Washington Post. Andrew's first book, which just came out a few days ago, Media of the Masses, Cassette Culture in Modern Egypt 2022, uh, is what we are talking about today. So Andrew, welcome to Afikra. Thank you so much for that introduction, Mikey. I've been a, a fan of Afikara for some time now, and it's just an honor to be here uh, with all of you today, talk about the book, how it came to be. It's my first time talking about it. Um, so I'm really looking forward to the, the conversation and to hearing from everyone in attendance. So is that it behind your left shoulder? Yes. So what does this it feel is, like to hold? It was surreal. <laughs> it was to have it no longer be a word document and to yeah. be able to actually flip through it beyond my uh my macbook um yeah. it was pretty awesome cool well uh, i was telling you this before the call um that i was doing a bunch of research about you and was trying to figure out you know find other lectures where you discuss the book and this is the first public lecture that uh where you get to be able to discuss the book but i did find something and i i got your permission to put this in first so i did find something online and this is an interview <laughs> that you were a part of <laughs> in 2011 or so like about yeah about 10 years ago um and before we get started, who was this kid? Who was this beardless, uh, beardless boy on the screen? And what were you doing there? And how is that related to what we're about to discuss? Sure. I feel like that that kid on the screen is almost looks like he could be my son or something. I look like I'm 10 years old in that screenshot. But uh, that was me uh, giving uh, doing an interview um, about the Egyptian revolution, really, as it was unfolding um, at the time. Um, and what I was witnessing and talking about in that interview now from over a decade ago, um, really served as the inspiration, um, for this project. So you were, you were Skyping in probably from Egypt in that interview. So in, in this, I'm actually Skyping in, um, from Connecticut. And okay. so this was, I think like a couple of months post, um, January, 2011. Okay, cool. So let's, let's jump into the book. Um, as I said, it's about, it's called media of the masses cassette culture in modern Egypt. Um, this is a photo that you took in Egypt. Um, how soon into, uh, into being there to study Arabic at Casa, how soon into that process did you get sort of interested in, into this, into this sort of, um, this prism through which to understand uh, Egyptian culture and Egyptian history? Sure. Um, so in terms of that, that CASA fellowship, which began in really a couple of weeks after graduating from Duke, almost within a week of graduating in May 2010, I flew to Cairo for that year-long fellowship. And then come January, we have the revolution. And it's really in that moment where I was taking Arabic classes at the old AUC campus directly on Tahrir Square, um, where I would look out my window and see you know, millions of people calling for the downfall of this dictator. I would go through the mass demonstrations just en route even to get home. Um, and that's when I really came to kind of realize 
the the power of sound and mass media. And that's when I started thinking more more critically um, about both of those topics. And that really then sparked my interest in uh, diving further into Egypt's soundscape as something to study uh, once I left Cairo and then returned yeah. to the US for grad school. Okay, I'm gonna read uh, an excerpt from the introduction of the book that I think does a good job of explaining the broader thesis of the book, but then I, I'd love for you to comment on that and give your explanation um, of what this book is about as if you were explaining it to a 15 year old. So in focusing on the social life of a single mass medium, in this case, Egypt's cassette culture, this book presents a panoramic history of a modern nation through the lens of an everyday technology. Over the course of six thematic chapters revolving around the ideas of consumption, the law, taste, circulation, history, and archives. It places cassettes, cassette players, and their diverse users into direct dialogue with a broader uh, cultural, political, economic, and social developments unfolding in the mid to late 20th century. Accordingly, a wide array of actors from singers and smugglers to polit politicians and police officers surface in this investigation, which contributes to the uh, debates on sound technology and archives in and outside of the Middle East studies. The book explores how cassette technology decentralized state-controlled Egyptian media long before the advent of satellite television and the internet, enabling an unprecedented number of people to participate in the creation of culture and the circulation of content. In these regards, cassettes and cassette players did not simply join other mass media like records and re uh, radio, they were the media of the masses. So, um, if you were to explain how you decided to put this book together and the, and the sort of broader thesis, what is missing in that introduction that you think is critical for a teenager or like a college freshman um, to understand if they were just trying to understand the, the whole point of the book? Yeah, sure. So it's funny to hear the words kind of <laughs> read back to me. I think that that is like a really distilled um, synopsis of what the book is all about. I mean, so this is really a history of Egypt through this prism of the country's cassette culture. And I guess two of the things that I'm trying to do is to look at what happens when people transition from being cultural consumers to cultural producers, really for the first time, courtesy of the advent of cassette technology. And so, of course, we have things like radio and record and magazines and different forms of print media preceding cassettes. But in all those cases, people are just really consuming what they're coming into contact with. With cassettes, all of a sudden, anyone can record their voice, can reach a mass audience, can contribute uh, to the creation of culture. One other thing that I guess I would add to kind of that synopsis is when it comes to the structure of the book, I envision it almost as a mixtape. And so each kind of chapter is like a track in my mind. And each track explores that particular theme, whether it is something like consumption of the law or history or archives. And I'm just really trying through this history uh, to encourage us, I think, to think critically about and also creatively with things like music and pop culture and media, things that we often kind of think about when we're not working <laughs> or not conducting research. And I wanna look at these things as, as an avenue of inquiry, as something that we can study. I, I love all of that. However, there was such a low hanging fruit that, how did you not call this part a, side A and side B? I know. I called it side A and side B kind of in my in my mind and when I talk about it. But I, I mean, I would also be tempted to call the chapters even tracks and like take it all the way in terms of the table of contents. But yeah. I think this is what happens when we move like the audio into the print medium and it has to become chapters um, and parts then. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad that we're at least on the same page. <laughs> um, okay. So for those of you who are... Um, this is the first outline conversation that you've been uh, that you've listened to. The whole series is about process. Um, oftentimes, as a consumer of projects and stuff like that, it looks like things are just ready-made, and there is no journey behind that. So, we're trying to since Africa is all about curiosity. We're trying to understand how things go from an idea to 
uh, an outcome. So the questions uh, are in three parts, before, during, and after. And we'd love to get a sense of the process through which you went to uh, eventually have that hardcover book sitting behind you on the shelf. So uh, we talked a little bit about this already, um, about what you were doing before you started working on the project. So let me ask you uh, a different question. Um, what was the moment that in your mind, the project actually started? When did you actually start writing this book um, in your head? Yeah, I would say it really started when I returned to Egypt uh, for my field work. And so this was probably around 2014. And it was at that point in time that I really began to explore all these different materials that I was finding um, outside of state archives and collections in Egypt that are not accessible to, to researchers. So things like uh, films, um, personal photographs that had once belonged in family albums that had like disintegrated, that I found the individual photos, tried to piece them back together. Uh, memoirs, cassettes, the actual places that contain those tapes. And one of the places that I went to very often, it's actually on the slide here, is the Sora Lesbakia paper market atop this metro stop uh, in downtown Cairo. And that's where I would look for things on, on a bunch of different topics that just piqued my interest. So things like uh, music, noise pollution, mass migration under Sadat, smuggling, automobiles, um, piracy, public taste. And I, I still remember one of the vendors at this market um, who has since become a, a close friend of mine, he saw that I was very disappointed on one of the trips that I couldn't find any of these things that I was looking for. And he basically said to me in this very nonchalant manner, well, isn't that the book that you're writing? And it kind of dawned on me in that moment that this could be my contribution to those shelves around me um, in that marketplace. And it's kind of that moment where I, the project I would say really started and I began to think more critically about it. Yeah, so write the book you wanna read. Right, okay, I write so, the book that I wanted to find there. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the next question is like one of my favorite questions to ask, which is what was the first version of the name of this project. I love names. I feel like they um, are very revealing. So was there a different name that you had before uh, the one we, we know? Yes, so I went, through, I went through a bunch of different iterations <laughs> and I take a lot of pride in titles, I feel like personally. And so it took me some time um, to arrive at this one. So the, the earliest title, it was called Sounding History cassettes, culture, and everyday life in modern Egypt. So one of those titles where we have a colon and then we have like three keywords sure. <laughs> that, are, that are following it. That then, archetype. Like, right, and then flash forward many years when like it actually became a book, I considered a, a few different options. So one of them was Egypt as a mixtape, which was kind of a nod to Beth Barron's wonderful book, Egypt as a woman. Another title I thought of was Audio Tapes in Action because this is really the story, not of the invention of cassettes, but what happens once this technology exists in the world. Yeah. And then I eventually arrived at Media of the Masses. And I, I wanna give, I should give a shout out here to Erica Iris, who is the artist who designed actually the image on the cover of the book, who does amazing work with um, cassette canvases, where she basically takes tapes, unwinds the magnetic reels from the inside and almost paints with them like they were ink. And so that's something that I wanted to highlight, almost like the masses emerging out of the medium um, on the yeah. front. It's interesting because like this, this whole project sort of is born out of this moment, this uh, um, Arab Spring moment in Egypt. And there isn't an article about that moment that doesn't mention a decentralized mass communications medium namely Twitter in this case, yeah. um, being the sort of uh, the driving force uh, behind that uh, or a sort of driving technology um, behind that. Is there any irony um, in your mind or that you're sort of like using these two parallel uh, technologies? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the things that um, really inspired me to look more into cassette culture in general was the the coverage of the Arab Spring, where we had people saying things like, 
the Egyptian revolution was a Facebook revolution and Twitter made the revolution in these different places. And something that I came to found really in the, in the course of this research is that cassettes in many ways did what social media did in the context of the Arab Spring decades prior when it came to elevating different voices and challenging state controlled media. And so that's why I also felt a need to really uh, want to tell this story. Yeah, it's similar to like, uh, it's similar to hip hop in, in New York in sort of the nineties. Um, okay, let's keep on going. Um, so when you, one of the things that I love about the, um, about sort of the structure of the book is it it's it's sort of multi-dimensional right it's thinking about distribution about law about all these different things when did you start to uh have the sort of light bulb moment of okay i don't actually just want to talk about the audio that is being played um, but i actually want to think about the entire pipeline the entire industry the entire culture that comes out of this Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I feel like I feel like there were there were almost multiple light bulb moments. I think one of them was when I started reading the, the popular Egyptian press. So when I started going through weekly magazines like Rosa Youssef, Akhir Sa, and I started seeing cassette technology surface on all these places that I wouldn't expect it <laughs> to appear. So seeing cassette players in advertisements for things like the modern home in Egypt, seeing cassette players surface in photographs in these crime reports <laughs> that were kind of um, praising the triumphs of police officers in the security sector in Egypt. And that moment, seeing cassettes in all these different contexts, crime reports, court cases, celebrity gossip, advertisements, editorials, that's when I really realized that like, this was not only gonna be a history of cassette technology, it really was gonna be a history of Egypt and then using cassette culture as a, as a starting point to tell that story. So that was kind of one of those moments reading those periodicals. What are we looking at right here? Yeah, so this is a, a photograph that starts um, actually chapter one, where we have three Egyptians posing with a cassette radio. This is in Iraq. And so one of the stories that the book tells is kind of like the history of mass migration during the, the oil boom under Sadat, where we have hundreds of thousands of Egyptians go everywhere from Saudi Arabia to Kuwait, Qatar, Iraq, Libya, um, in search of uh, really higher wages. And then one of the things that ended up happening is that the history of cassette culture is directly tied to this because many Egyptians purchased cassette technology abroad and brought it back to Egypt then. And so the oil boom in many ways is like part of this story. It's actually has become a cliche almost in Egyptian cinema because when Egyptian migrants return in films, they often return with two things. One of them is a double cassette radio with like the two decks so they can record and transfer. And the other is uh, an electric fan. This happens in Tir uh, Enta, for instance. And so this was something that was very commonplace. And this, this photo surfaced on Facebook decades after it was initially taken and kind of given, given a new life. And I was able to contact um, one of the people whose father actually appears in the photograph. And so that's kind of the, the history of this image. Oh, cool. Okay, so um, while we're still in the, the um, before period, let's talk about some of the, the friction. Um, what's on the friction that slowed the project down? So you mentioned 2014 was that moment, the sort of when it started, it's 2022 now. Um, what were some of the maybe unexpected friction um, if you were to speak to yourself back then say hey andrew just watch out there these things are going <laughs> to slow you down what are some of the things that slowed you down yeah so i think the the research overall unfolded quite slowly <laughs> gradually but uh enjoyably i mean i think one of the challenges was explaining to people, many of whom would become friends in Egypt, why I was studying cassettes <laughs> in the first place, why I wanted to hear about their experiences 
with this medium to begin with. I I think I kind of over time like became that cassette guy <laughs> in terms of cultivating a lot of those relationships. I think another kind of thing that slowed things down was cassette collections vanishing that I was looking at. And so there was a collection of tapes um, almost like in this antique shop in Zemelik in Cairo. And I was trying to catalog them and there's a few hundred tapes and I was going through and taking photographs and writing down different information. And then I returned one day and they were all gone. And so that was a never to return. <laughs> and so even, even uh, at the start of the book, there's an image of a, of a kiosk in Maidi in Cairo that has this towering uh, glass case with thousands of tapes. When I returned to that four years later, that entire collection had vanished as well. And there's another photograph in the, in the conclusion of the book. And so having materials disappear <laughs> was something that I would say is a challenge. And then other than that, I think the biggest thing that slowed me down uh, was probably traffic in Cairo overall <laughs> in, terms of, sure. in terms of getting places. And sheer, sheer minutes and hours. Yeah. Um, okay, I want to move on. We have a ton of other questions in the before period, but I want to move into the, the sort of writing it. Um, so who were some of the early believers that helped shape, shape the project? Yeah, in terms of early believers, I would say that there are, um, I mean, a number of people. One of them is Ziad Fahmi, And so he's someone who's a, a wonderful scholar. He was an incredible advisor to me um, in graduate school. I count him as a close friend now. He was just a, a great sounding board. I think another early believer was the, the American Research Center in Egypt, um, the Social Science Research Council. Both of them really supported my work at a point in time when this project was very much an idea, when I was proposing things I wanted to do, but hadn't necessarily done them yet. Um, I think too, the Netherlands Flemish Institute in Cairo, they have an amazing library, just like a wonderful sense of community there. Um, and then also um, many Egyptians who I, I count as very close friends now. So people like Sayyid Anaba, who personally knew Sheikh Hamam, along with Asmat and Nimr, um, Mohammed Sadiq, Abbas Mohammed Salama, a number of different cassette vendors, people that once owned labels, the director of the music library at the Cairo Opera House. Um, so there were a lot of people that really welcomed me with open arms and sat down with me for hours over many glasses of tea <laughs> to talk about their experiences uh, with this technology. Do you feel like, I, I skipped a question earlier, but I think there's a good time to ask it actually. Do you feel like you had to do this project or do you feel like somebody had to do it? And in fact, <clears throat> you were actually going into it with like a handicap. Yeah, so I would say that, um, I felt like I had to do it. Like, I don't feel like this project was necessarily on the forefront of many scholars' minds <laughs> when it comes to things to study, simply because pop culture is so often viewed as a source of entertainment, rather as something to, to think critically about. And so this is something that I really felt compelled um, to write and something that I felt passionate about. And I think that's the reason also why it often didn't feel like work. It was something that I genuinely enjoyed um, doing. As you were writing um, the project, are you referencing other people's work and other scholars who are not necessarily writing about Egypt, are not necessarily writing about cassette culture? They're kind of, um, their DNA is informing your work, but somebody like me wouldn't cat wouldn't sort of uh, notice the connections. Yeah, sure. So I think that there, there are a number of people. So one of them is um, David Arnold. He wrote this book called Everyday Technology, where he explores kind of um, less extraordinary and more ordinary small machines. So things like bicycles, um, sewing machines in the context of India. So not, not the region. Um, another person is Elaine Corbin, uh, this French historian that wrote this book about bell ringing in France. It's like hundreds of pages just about bells ringing. And that's something that really piqued my interest in soundscapes and also being able to study soundscapes in his case without even recordings of the sounds that he's writing about. 
Another person um, is Kirsten Weld. Uh, she's a historian of Latin America. She wrote this book, Paper Cadavers. It really inspired me to think much more critically about archives and, and the kind of the sorts of stories that archives either enable or really prohibit from being, from being told. And so those are some of the people that influenced my, my thinking as I was conducting the work. Okay, very cool. So if you were to explain this in phases, so from starts in 2014, that idea clicks in your head, 2022, it comes out. What are the sort of phases of writing that, writing everything to getting to the point where it's actually published? Um, yeah, give me, give me a sort of a, a, a map for me to follow. Yeah, many, many phases. This was like a mishwar in every sense of the word in terms yeah. of all of the stages. Like I would say uh, collecting, processing, uh, organizing, writing, and then tons of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And so yeah. like to give you just, or to give all of you kind of one, one example, uh, I would read an issue of a magazine. I would then photograph any relevant parts in that single issue, then upload those photographs to my MacBook and then keyword tag every image based on its content. So letter to the editor, um, vulgarity, taxis, noise, things like that. Then sort those photos into albums around a particular idea, write up notes on those albums those notes then through the albums would become outlines, which would become the first drafts of chapters. And so that's something that that kind of archive that I created, like on my iPhoto library, I think there's some 20,000 plus images that are all keyword tagged that I can um, return to now at any point also for, for future projects. And then kind of repeat that process with every issue of these magazines that came out on a weekly basis over 20 plus years. And so that's the foundation and how some of the phases play out then when it comes to the book. So do you have like, as you're working on this, are you constantly coming up with other ideas? Like, oh my God, there's a book, there's a book about um, home economics that is just, it needs to be written that is like the the evolution there's a book about like um in, interior design the evolution of interior design throughout the 50s 60s and 70s and 80s uh that is like i'm i'm tagging so many so many interior design stuff do you have this sort of like plethora of ideas that you're just trying to shush as you're writing this yes for sure and some of them are much harder to shush than others i would say i mean okay. one of the things that i came across that's actually going to be the subject of an of an article that i may be about a little over halfway through writing is on family planning and family planning in the 70s and 80s and how that played out in the popular press and that has nothing to do with cassette tapes but i have this album where i've dragged in probably a thousand images from those different magazines. And so it inspired me to look at really a whole variety of different topics um, that would not surface in those state collections or in those other libraries. And so the press kind of opened my eyes to all these different subjects. Yeah, there's like, I forget who I interviewed about, about Hawa Magazine, who was writing about Hawa Magazine. Um, anyway, that's cool. Um, all right, let's talk about failures. What are some of the instructive failures over the course of the writing that you're like, oh yeah, that 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 hurt, but it was very useful. Yeah, I think in terms of like uh, moments that proved very useful, one of them is really being able to accept criticism and constructive feedback, being able to let go of things that I have written. And so there, there are entire pages of chapters um, that didn't make it into the book, just in yeah. order to keep the narrative as kind of streamlined as, as possible. So, I mean, one example of this is when I'm talking about uh, Nixon's visit to Egypt in 1974. Um, on the, in fact, on the slide here, this is where we have this huge spectacle 
surrounding that visit. And then we have Sheikh Imam come out, sing Nixon Baba, and completely undermines the government's story of that. One of the things that didn't make it into the book, but was in an earlier version of that chapter, is how Nixon himself and Kissinger and Sadat remembered that visit and recalled it years later in their respective memoirs. And Nixon, believe it or not, years after he went to Egypt, still could recall some of the cheers that he heard word for word. Whereas Sadat, in his memoir, In Search of Identity, if any of you have, have looked at that, talks about the visit in a single sentence. And all he says is, Nixon came to Egypt and it preceded this terrible whirlpool, is how he describes it, of political turmoil in the US. And so in many ways, he tries to write the visit out of history after trying to cement it into history. And so that was one of the things, for instance, that I really liked writing, that I wanted to be there, but just had to be cut. So being willing not only to rewrite, but to, to let go uh, of things that I did write. And that's coming from uh, editors or advisors? That's coming from... Um, or like yeah, an people, internal, people that, internal colleagues, people that, people that read it, that I circulated the work to. I mean, I yeah. think that that is another kind of key lesson to speaking of process in terms of sharing what I did write um, to receive feedback from not only people that study the Middle East, but also that study other places around the world, people that aren't scholars um, and just being open to their, to their advice. I, I'm curious how much you shared with um, you know, it, it's tricky, like academic scholarship on mass media is like a hard thing, can be oxy oxymoronic, right? Um, and in some cases, because it's like, how, how much are you bouncing these ideas off people on the street, right? How many, how, how much are you bouncing these theories and these hunches and this analysis off people who sort of grew up listening to these tapes to see like if if you're grasping at straws if you're like totally uh convoluting ideas um how often were you doing that yeah i think that that's something that happens or happened really on an on an everyday basis simply in terms of just daily conversations that I was having with people, not in terms of like, what do you think of how I'm formulating this part in this chapter or something, but asking people like, what did cassette technology mean to you? Or like, tell me some cassette stories. Or like, what was it like to grow up with this technology? And a, a number of those kind of, those oral interviews or those like mundane exchanges, um, some of them made it into the book, especially in terms of there's a final chapter on kind of cassettes that linger in Egypt up until this day, um, but also just shaped my thinking overall in terms of crafting um, this story. And so it's something that happened frequently. Yeah. Okay, so we, we already sort of talked about the process of actually like tagging stuff and writing, um, but I, I wanna spring a question on you that you don't know about. So um, I see behind you a whole stack of cassettes. Yeah. Right? Do you have like five most cherished cassettes that you're like, oh my God, I'll never give this up? Yeah, there's a few. Should I like tell a couple of like short stories or something? Sure, yeah, <laughs> if you can pull them out. Let's let's see some of your, your um, okay. keep in so, plastic sleeve. Let's see here. <laughs> Okay, so a couple, just to go through a couple of these. So one of these is, I'll hold it up. Hopefully people will be able to see it. So this is the soundtrack of Sungum, which was this hit Indian film that came out in 1964. That is about two men who basically fall in love with the same childhood friend. This has been re-recorded as Quranic recitation. And so we're moving from, from Bollywood to Islamic sounds. In terms of Quranic recitation, this is Sheikh Antar Said Musallam. This is someone that features in chapter six. He was a Quran reciter that was banned by Al-Azhar from reciting the Quran. And he was someone who one writer said was as popular as Ahmed Adawaya, one of the pioneers of, of, of Shabi music when it came to being heard in Egypt's countryside. 
And there's just a fascinating story surrounding him in terms of this letter that apparently appeared in the press where he repented for the error of his ways when it came to his very innovative recitations and, and the bending of certain words, and that he apparently encouraged readers to actually burn his cassette tapes because they were blasphemous. And this is a conversation, I never found that letter in the press. And this is a discussion that actually unfolded on Facebook where someone then responded and said, that never happened. That letter was never written. And then I went to that individual's profile who has a YouTube channel where he has hundreds of Sheikh Anthar's initial recordings. And so that's another story that kind of stands out to me. Another tape, this tape is, okay. So this is of Beethoven that has been re-recorded as Hassan al-Asmar, who along the lines of Ahmad Adawaya was this singer who was very frequently accused of being vulgar and contaminating public taste. Basically all the criticisms that we hear of Maharaganat music today were taking place decades prior in terms of these individuals or, or the TikTok dancers or all these news stories we see having that much longer history. Another recording, so this is Abdul Halim Hafiz, except this is not through his label with Muhammad Abdul Wahab, it's through this other label called Rondaphone, run by Sayyid Ismail, who basically pirated all of their music. And then Abdul Halim and Muhammad Abdul Wahab took Sayyid Ismail to court over that and actually lost the court case. So this record label, you can find Abdul Halim, Um Kothum, Leila Murad, all of these other artists who were not signed with that actual label. Another recording, this is maybe like the final one I'll show because I could go on about this forever. So this is a recording of Um Kulthum, the voice of Egypt, the voice that many people who don't even really know anything about the Middle East may be familiar with, has been re-recorded as Nadia Mustafa. And so something that I love about this tape is that this shows that no one, not even Um Kulthum, was immune to being erased and replaced and copied when it came to um, this technology. And then we also have things I should point out just very quickly here. We have people like Madonna. This is a tape that I found in the Cairo market, Michael Jackson. And so people, I mean, I think one thing that I wanted to show in this book is that people going all the way back to the the 70s when it came to cassettes, could listen to an Islamic sermon, then change the tape and listen to the Rolling Stones, then change the tape and listen to the Beatles, then listen to Um Kulthum, then listen to Ahmed Adawiya. The soundscape was so rich and was so diverse. And that's that complexity is something that I wanted to showcase when it came to the book. Amazing. That's fantastic. Okay, let's talk a little bit about some of your reflections now that the book is done and sort of out. Um, knowing what you know now, what do you wish you had prepared for or prepped for differently at, in sort of 2011 or 2014? Yeah, so knowing what I know now, I think, I mean, one of the things was really, was really, I would say, like materials just disappearing. What we were kind of talking about earlier, that was something that I was not anticipating or expecting something that often came as kind of a whiplash and rude awakening <laughs> when it happened. So if I could go back, I think one of the things I would do is anytime that I found a cassette collection to really stick with it in that moment and to try to document the whole thing as much as possible um, at that point in time. Because sometimes I think I took some of those things for granted in terms of them them lasting. And that yeah. certainly wasn't, wasn't the case. How do you think about achievement? So what is like the healthy way for you to think about achievement? What are you proud of? What does success look like for this type of project? Yeah, I think success for me looks like being here with you, like having a chance to discuss the book. Like this is something that I have invested in for, for a number of years and something that I now have the privilege um, to share and discuss. And I want to have conversations around it. And in terms of what I'm proud of, I think producing something 
that I really hope will resonate with people in the Middle East, as opposed to researching something that is only of interest to scholars outside of the region. And, and this is one of the reasons why I really want to secure an Arabic translation for the book, because I think there really is a, a space for something on the history of popular culture um, and its politics. So creating yeah. something that, that resonates with people, that, that, that sparks conversations. So do you think, would you say, um, let's say somebody, some, uh, you know, otherworldly grant, um, granting organization came to you and said, hey, listen, there needs to be an exact, a companion book um, for every single, every single country in, in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, would you say, yeah, that's, that's about right. Or would you say, uh, no, this is actually a uniquely Egyptian book. And a uniquely Egyptian idea. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things in terms of cassette culture, not only in the case of uh, the Middle East, but even globally. And so I think cassettes really. You mentioned uh, hip hop, even in the U.S., places like New York earlier in the '90s, is that the technology really elevates like this unprecedented number of voices in all of these contexts. But something that is different and important about Egypt when we're comparing it to the US, for instance, is the fact that media, big media was state controlled. And so like when it came to something like the radio, and this was very public knowledge where you would have radio stations come out and say, well, we only play these 15 artists and here are the artists in these different tiers. And here's how often that we're going to play them, you know, every day or every week or every month. The radio even had screening committees in Egypt, where you would have to submit a text, almost very Orwellian in nature, <laughs> and then that would get approved or rejected most often. It would get recorded, you would submit the song, that would get approved or rejected. It would go to a station, and then the station would make that decision. Cassettes blew all of that open in terms of reaching those bigger audiences. So I think we could see similar things um, in other settings, but when it comes to that level of state control, that's not something that we find that we find everywhere. Cool. Um, what did you, this says the problem that you were solving, but what do you think you fundamentally misunderstood about um, the process of writing a book um, and the, the, the book that you were writing? Yeah, sure. So in terms of, in terms of the, the research, one thing that I tried to do very consciously was to keep a very open mind and to, to follow what the sources were telling me rather than trying to impose my ideas on them. When it came to that process of writing a book, I would maybe say just how long of a road it is <laughs> in terms of all of the different drafts, yet alone collecting all of the materials and analyzing them, the amount of rewriting that I think needs to be done I gained a, a completely newfound appreciation for copy editors. Like I thought I knew how to write in English, but that turned out not necessarily to, to be the case, even when it came to the usage of certain phrases and words. And so that was something that I recognized. And then just all the work that goes in from so many people in terms of creating a single book, when it comes to the design team, marketing, the editor, reviewers. Um, and so that was something that made me not only grateful in terms of the people who really generously gave their time to me along the way, but I think grateful for books more generally, <laughs> having an appreciation for all the books behind me and all of the time that people took to produce those. Yeah. Okay. Let's do the quick Q&A and then we will open up some questions from the chat. So rapid fire. Um, what are you reading or watching these yeah so in terms of uh that i would say watching moon Knight on disney plus i don't want any spoilers from the audience i'm an episode behind in terms of reading i'm reading uh rafael cormac's midnight in cairo i think this is actually gonna be the subject of a book club um yeah he's on. he's he's coming on the series in a in a few weeks okay another another book i'm reading is Treva Lindsay's America Goddamn. This is a book that came out very recently on violence, black women and the struggle for justice. 
Uh, there's another book by Peng Shepard called the, the Book of M. It's a novel. It's more kind of fantastical in nature. Um, I'm also listening to a bunch of stuff. So NPR's Throughline is this uh, amazing podcast. There's another yeah. podcast called Drafting the Past. It's about the craft of history, like how people actually write. And then another podcast is Kerning Cultures, yeah. which is just like these, these brilliant stories like about the Middle East and, and beyond it. And so those are some of the things that I'm um, encountering now. Cool. Who would you love to shadow for a day past or present? Yeah, Sheikh Hamam, without a doubt. And I think that my, my current work um, almost lets me shadow him from afar. He's someone that I really wish I could have met um, in person uh, before he passed. Um, but that's someone who immediately comes to mind. Cool. What do people most misunderstand about your work? I guess even like your students, your family, uh, you know, vendor, uh, cassette player vendors, what do people most misunderstand about you, your work? Yeah, I think, I think one thing that maybe um, many people who have like passed through graduate school have experienced is like from some friends and family members thinking that you're working on like a paper and they'll ask like when your paper is going to be done and you're like, oh, this paper is a book and it's gonna be done in like 15 years. I think that that's something that is like a misassumption about the research. And then I would say like, again, really just, I think this is just important, like pop culture being not something to be studied. Like this is something that I really push for, not only when it comes to my research, but also when it comes to my teaching, because so often these cultural productions, if we think of something like films, are really what are informing people for better or worse about a place like the Middle East. And whereas academic articles may reach like a couple thousand people, these films are reaching millions of people. So I think that they really merit critical analysis. And that's something um, that, that's important to me and something that I really tried to do in, in a classroom as well. Cool. And then real quick, uh, whose work do you admire or are inspired by in or out of your profession? Yeah, I think a, a, a number of people. So like um, scholars like Walter Armbrust, uh, Joel Gordon, Shokat Torawa, people who are not only, I think are brilliant, but are very generous with their time. Colleagues at Dartmouth, like Jonathan Smolin, Tarek Alaris, Ezzedine Fashir, like people who have built this very vibrant Middle East program. Kate Wall, the editor-in-chief at Stanford Press, like she has brought so many wonderful stories about the Middle East into the world. And that's something that I really appreciate. Peter Hessler, he's one of my favorite writers. He's a, a great storyteller for The New Yorker. Rami Youssef, like Rami is one of my favorite programs on Hulu. I think he's terrific and is like doing something very special when it comes to that, um, that show and the stories that he's telling. Cool. Okay, we have some questions. The first one comes from Iman. Uh, Iman, I'm gonna ask you to unmute and then you can ask your question. Um, hi, I didn't think I'd have to unmute. I thought I could just write the question. Oh, I can, I can read it for you if you'd like, or you can read it. All right. Um, how much of the book is comprised of explaining things to English speaking audiences that when translated into Arabic won't be necessary? So. Who, who, what Arabic speaker would you be addressing and what would you be telling them if you're not telling them all of the things that they probably already know about popular culture in Egypt and Egypt's history? Yeah, sure. So one of the, thank you for the question. I mean, one of the things that I tried to do in this book um, is to tell a story in a very kind of clear and engaging way. Like this book is not overly theoretical in nature. And it's really for anyone um, who has a background or not, who's interested in music, media, and popular culture. And even in terms of Egypt's history, I think that this book first and foremost is really uh, a cultural history. And so some of the topics may be familiar, but they're being approached from, I would say a different angle. Like one example of that, is Amr Sadat's Fatah, Egypt's economic opening. This is something that's often told from this very top-down perspective in terms of these grander policies that were trying to be implemented. 
And one of the things that I tried to do is really look at the cultural politics of the economic opening, like taking a cultural angle to these phenomena that we perceive to be primarily economic or social or political in nature. And so I'm hoping that there's something, something in this book for, for everyone. Okay, cool. Before we wrap up, Andrew, what are you working on right now? Yeah, so in terms of um, what's next, so one of them is uh, the Arabic translation that I'm trying to trying to make happen. Another is I'm I want to make all of these cassettes behind me and many more that are not in the frame. I want to make that private collection public, and so I'm in the process of creating a digital archive that's going to share this acoustic culture with a much wider audience. And so that's something to be on the lookout for. Um, that should happen later this year. And then in terms of my work, I'm, I'm working on a piece right now on record culture in colonial Egypt, um, and then a much larger project on Sheikh Imam. And so if anyone has stories about Imam, I would love to hear them, please reach out. If anyone has cassettes that they would like to see included in that archive project, also feel free um, to email me. Awesome. And I'm sure this guy would have loved to read the book. <laughs> so um, thanks, Andrew, really. It's, uh, it's so much fun that you uh, came on this program. I'm really, really happy about it and was really excited to read the book. Yeah, thanks so much for this opportunity, Mike. I really, I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm looking forward to tuning in to future Afikara events. Yeah. All right, everybody, enjoy your evening or your day wherever you are. We're going to take a break for the next couple of days and we'll be back on Tuesday. Bye, guys. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikda.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.